Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer from the Chicago Cubs, and you're listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast featuring everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman. Follow him on Twitter at Coach Manaman. This podcast is produced on Anchor, where you can record, edit, and publish all from your smartphone. You can find the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platforms. Stepping to the batter's box. Welcome and thanks for joining me, everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman, on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Today is a 100% guilty pleasure interview for me. I try to have every single episode tie back to Dubuque or tie back to Iowa, but I am joined by John Fitzgerald, who is the director of the Emerald Diamond and one of my, actually not one of my all-time favorite baseball shows. It is my all-time favorite baseball show, Playing for Peanuts. And I was surprised when I met with John today, there actually is a connection to Iowa. So this is not a guilty pleasure interview. He is wearing a University of Iowa hooded sweatshirt and he just shared with me that he is getting his master's degree from the University of Iowa. So John Fitzgerald, Director of Playing for Peanuts, welcome to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Hey coach, thanks for having me. Now, the stretch run here with Coach Manaman are some questions that I've gathered for you about the show, and I've been plugging Playing for Peanuts for a long time, I would say probably 10 years. I have owned the DVD since it came out. I watched it on Comcast when it was first released, and I have shared this DVD with so many people that I've coached with or I've played with. I've lent them my copy for them to watch. But my first question for you, John, is how did you get into directing, and how did it come about for you to follow the South Georgia Peanuts in the newly formed South Coast League? Well, that's a good question. And first off, thanks for sharing uh, the show. You know, it's, it's really kind of taken on a, I guess, a cult following in the baseball world, which, um, you know, it's really, really cool. I, I run into people all the time that either played pro ball or coach in high school or college. And, you know, they've watched the show, they've seen the show and, and uh, it resonates. And, um, you know, it's, it's a good feeling. So, um, to answer your question, you know, I uh, coming out of uh, college, uh, I was a marketing major, and one of my uh, my good friends from back when I played little league um, was I, uh, he was a director of photography, uh, cinematographer coming out of film school, and I had helped him on some of his projects, and I wanted to do that too. You know, I, I wanted to be a director or a producer, and you know, I, I love you know storytelling and, and all of that, and I'm a big baseball fan. And, um, started working on some movies as a production assistant. Um, I worked on, you know, some, some Hollywood movies, you know, doing really low level stuff, but it was, it was enjoyable. I really did like, you know, the, the atmosphere and, and, um, I never thought about documentaries until I found out that Ireland had a national baseball team and I wanted to play for them. And, um, long story short, I couldn't, 
I couldn't play for them because I wasn't eligible to get citizenship. So I, I asked the guys over in Ireland, I said, Hey, would you mind if I came over with my buddy, uh, the guy who, you know, was read right out of film school. And I said, uh, I'd like to try to make a movie about you guys. And, um, that was, uh, that was my first, um, my second directing, uh, gig. My first one was a short film. Um, but, uh, yeah. And that's, you know, telling that story, the story of baseball in Ireland, which was something that people, you know, to this day hear about. And they're like, well, what is that about? And, um, it was a cool, you know, story. Uh, um, and, you know, I was just there to tell it and being there to tell that story kind of got me, you know, thinking like, well, what can we do in the U S that's kind of on the same lines, you know, but, but a little bit different. And, uh, and that's how we came to playing for peanuts. John, can I cut you off here real quick? Where sure. can people find the Emerald Diamond if they would like to watch that? I know I own it. I'm a huge fan of it. But if somebody listens to this and they want to watch it, how do they get that in their hands? Um, it's it's available on Amazon. And um, there's a short – it's a 90-minute uh, – let me think here. 90-minute movie. But there's a short 48-minute version that's on YouTube, which really gives you, you know, most of the story. So you can check it out on YouTube if you like it. You can pick it up on Amazon. and uh, It's still kicking around. It's still out there. Great movie. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Now, for Playing for Peanuts, people that haven't heard me talk about it, Playing for Peanuts is a 10-episode documentary that follows the newly formed South Coast League. And you were paired with Wally Backman from the New York Mets and the South Georgia Peanuts. And it follows a startup independent league, and it's got great baseball information. It's funny. It's a move. It's a show where you get emotionally tied to the players. You get emotionally tied to the storylines. And it's a great balance of baseball, but also a great balance of having empathy toward these players playing in this league. Now, how did you get connected with the South Coast League and the South Georgia Peanuts? Email. Um, I sent emails to a few leagues. I can't remember which ones, but all the indie leagues. Um, And uh, one of the guys at the South Coast League got my email and they said, yeah, you know, you can come on down and and do this. And uh, I think they gave me a list of the coaches if I I recall, and um, none of them stood out as being interesting at all, except for Wally Backman. Um, and, and I grew up a Mets fan, but I wasn't a big Wally Backman fan. I mean, I, I was a fan in '86, and he was part of the team, and I like watching him play. But I was a Lenny Dykstra fan and Keith Hernandez and those guys. But um, yeah, when I saw his name, I, I said, you know, that's the guy I want to follow. There's some name recognition. I was not even up on like, you know, the Arizona Diamondbacks backstory and how this was his re-entry into the game. I guess I knew that at the time, but I just, the, the, really the, the uh, enormity of all the stuff he had been through and his personality and how that was going to make him a lightning rod. None of that was, was uh, going through my head at that time. I just thought, Hey, he's a name, 86 minutes. Um, let's follow him. So that that's how, that's how that selection was made. Now, I'm going to skip over a question here and come back to something. But let's talk about uh, Wally Backman here. On camera, he has he's very intense. He's all business. He's all about baseball. How was he off camera with you and off camera with the players? 
Um, see, my, my perception of Wally, both on and off camera, is the same guy. It, um, he, but, but my perception, and I think the perception of the crew, and this is from you know, basically living with the team, was that he was not intense at all. Um, he was all business, um, had a plan for every game, every, you know, batting practice. He always had a plan for, you know, big picture for, and then small picture for each player, what he was trying to do for them. Um, and he stuck to that plan, but his, his overall demeanor was extremely laid back. What you see, if you watch like the, um, the outtake videos on YouTube and you see, how he's just, you know, smoking a cigarette in the clubhouse or, or just hanging out, you know, even during the game, very laid back. And then the uncle will blow a call, like it's just a ball strike call, <laughs> and then, you know, five F-bombs. And then he's totally snapped back to just, you know, just relaxed. And so, it, you know, his the cursing and the throwing bats on the field, that was really performance art. I mean, people think he, he did that for the cameras. He didn't do that for the cameras. He was doing it for the team. Um but he would, I mean, he'd throw bats on the field. I think he only had two, he had three ejections. We missed one. We weren't there for one. Um, but he only had three ejections the whole season. But he would just, you know, raise hell for 15 minutes. And then he's, you know, just hanging out behind the dugout. They tossed him. There's no place for him to go. And he's just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, we got we to take a bus ride to Macon tonight. You know, I, I'm not looking forward to that. And just totally relaxed. And, and he was really like that. Um, his problem i think with the league started about halfway in because the umpiring was horrible in the league i mean it was objectively horrible the fans knew it the players knew it we as the crew knew it every manager knew it phil plantier had been tossed out of numerous games um it was just i mean the guys were trying but they were i think they were high school umpires and they were they had never been in that situation you know these are guys playing that you know some of them were right out of college so they were playing high level ball there some of them are coming down from the affiliated leagues, and there were a few former major leaguers. The game was too fast for them. Um, I don't know why the league had high school umpires. Um, I'm sure it was some sort of cost-saving measure in retrospect, but Wally wanted the best for his players. He wanted the best for the league and for the town, and it became obvious halfway through that, I mean, this thing was not working, and the umpires were through no fault of their own. I mean, Wally and the other coaches, you know, they got on really well with the umps. But once the game started, Wally was not going to take any garbage from anybody. And, and if you call this player out on a bad call, he's going to go out and tell you about it. So, yeah, it, he was pretty laid back. But about halfway through, everybody, especially him, started to just get really antsy because it became clear that things were not going the way they were supposed to be going. One of my favorite scenes, you talk about how laid back he was, was when he pulls Jarrett Sutton into the dugout to tell him that he's gotten signed by, I believe it was the Milwaukee Brewers. And he's talking to him and he's telling him his journey to the Brewers. They're going to pick him up. They're going to fly him out. They're going to send him to this. And then all of a sudden there was either an error or a bad call and he stops his conversation. He yells something onto the field and then picks up in the same sentence on where they're going to send him. I believe it was rookie ball or Sally ball. So that's really a testament to what you were saying there. Yeah, that's exactly, that's a perfect microcosm of the whole thing. I mean, he, and that's like one of the things where he wasn't ejected. He didn't like light into the umpire. It was just like, he was, he was just pissed about something. And, and, you know, but his goal was to get Sutton on a bus to go wherever he needed to go. And he wanted to make sure he gave him that, you know, that pep talk. And they had asked him before that, um, 
two minutes before that, hey, Jared Sutton got signed. You want us to make a big announcement, whatever. He's like, no, I want to talk to him first. And that was a big deal for him because his goal was to win the championship, but it was to do it with an entirely new team. He wanted his entire team to get picked up. And I think he got like, I want to say six or seven guys picked up. And then the following season, a few of his guys ended up getting picked up before the year started. So um, he did a good job. I mean, he, he was he was a tremendous manager. And, and we, as a crew, learned a ton about baseball. I mean, I played a little bit in college. I played in high school. And uh, I learned so much about baseball because we had a mic on the whole time. So even stuff that never made it, um, we were just listening. And uh, my buddy, the one from the Ireland movie, who uh, I played Little League with, He's a baseball guy. I'm a baseball guy. My brother was on the crew. He's a baseball guy. But as the season went on, we started to get other crew members from New York to come down, and they were not baseball guys. And and they would come to me after the game and be like, you know, this thing that Wally did in the sixth inning, it was incredible. Or did you hear what he said? And I was like, no, I wasn't paying attention. But, like, they they instantly knew. Like, this this guy is, like, you know, he's a baseball genius. And uh, – it was just so cool to be able to hear that kind of stuff. And, and uh, like I said, it wasn't a huge Wally fan going in, but at the end of it, I was just like, wow, this guy needs to be managing the major leagues. You talked about uh, an ejection that you missed. Um, I believe it was an ESPN poll that had the ejection from your show. I believe it was in Anderson, South Carolina, where the bats and the balls were thrown out there. I believe that was voted the greatest ejection of all time. I actually personally like the one where he got thrown out in Macon a little bit better, but you had shared that there was one ejection that you guys were not able to catch on camera. How come you guys did not catch that one? And can you give us a little bit of insight or a little bit of background from hearsay on what that ejection was about and what all went down? Um, I wasn't there. So what happened was um, the, the idea for the show was that we were supposed to, we were expecting to be picked up by either ESPN, ironically, or some other network. So we started filming and we were, you know, kind of putting together the shows, but we were only going to do it for two weeks. And then, you know, the idea was that a crew was going to come down from ESPN or another network and, and really take over the show. That didn't happen. Um, so we were kind of in flux. I think it was like two weeks into the season where money was low and we weren't sure if we were going to even finish the show at that point. We knew we had a great story, which is why we continued. Um, but at a certain point, I think I was back in New York with the crew for like two or three days and he got tossed. It, if memory serves, that's exactly what the way it happened. There's a chance it happened later in the season, but I think it was early in the season and it was just, it, it actually was probably the least interesting of Wally's ejections. Um, but the Anderson one, he threw bats and balls on the field during kids' day, uh, during like a 100-degree day at like 11 o'clock in the morning. So that's, you know, that's an instant classic. And I agree, the making the making one is re- really, really interesting because of all the things that kind of like led up to it. And um, the fact that our cameraman, it was a foul ball on a home run, and our cameraman didn't catch it because – it was so far foul. He just panned the camera back to the field. And I was like, did you get it? He was like, get what? I was like, he called it a home run. And then he looks up and the guy's, you know, signaling home run. He was like, oh, my God, I missed it. Um, so you knew while he was getting tossed there. And, and it came out later that, I mean, it's hearsay, but somebody said that uh, a bunch of people said they saw the umpire in, in a, like an olive garden night before. And he was promising to toss Wally. Like, that's what he wanted to do. Um no, we, we couldn't get a hold of that guy. We wanted to interview him, but um, just the whole Wally and Phil Plantier 
rapping and, and the, the making music was like their big rival. Um, and, and the people that make it did not like Wally at all. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and, um, but yeah, that other ejection that we missed, thankfully, it wasn't that interesting <laughs> from what we've heard. Yeah, John, the thing that I, I love about baseball and, and I love about the baseball community is um, I started watching this show on Comcast. I completely stumbled across it watching a Chicago White Sox game. They were promoting the show after a White Sox game, and, and I started watching it. And I watched the show, and I loved the show, and I set my DVR to record every single new episode and every single rerun, so I did not miss anything. And this was before it was on YouTube, and I had my heart broken because it was suddenly pulled from Comcast, and we never really got to figure out the um, ending of the story. And then I reached out, and um, actually my wife bought it for me on, I think it was Amazon or your website at the time, and you had reached out to her on how she found the show or why did she purchase the show, which eventually led us to to connect and make a connection on how we got connected with the show. But I do want to go back to that ejection, the one with um, him throwing the balls and the bats in Anderson, South Carolina. As a director, when you see it start to unfold, what is going through your mind? What is going through your head as a director when you see Wally storm out on the field and um, just starts going nuts? Um, it's pretty basic. Just just make sure that the camera stays on him because you don't know what, what's going to happen. And really, until you go back and watch the footage, you don't really know why. I mean, that um, that particular one, that was a ball. It was actually a ball call. And his hitter had a ball called on him, but he asked where the where the ball was, and the ump tossed him. So there was a whole backstory to how that happened. It was really mundane stuff, like you know the hitter wasn't happy, the umpire knew it. There was no real argument going on, and then there was a ball call, and the and the hitter just said, "Where was that?" And he tosses because you know obviously the the unsaid thing there was the hitter thought, "Hey, well, based on your strikes alone, that should probably be a strike, right?" Um, so you don't see that. You certainly don't hear it unless you're listening to it. And I, I don't even think I was listening at that point. I think our cameraman w- was listening. Um, so he comes out and you're just like, you know, I had a camera at my feet and I picked that up. So we had two cameras on him. Um, and we just, we just basically were just like on Wally, you know, and at a certain point during that tirade, I think I switched over to filming the reaction of the players because that was pretty classic. They were just like, they had had enough of the league. They had had enough of that day, um, you know, and, and that was part of what Wally was doing. I mean, he wanted the, the, the players to know that he was on their side. But also, I mean, I can't imagine how boring some of that stuff must have been for the other teams because, you know, Wally at least injected some life into uh, what was going on. But, um, you know, that was, his, that was his top hitter, Doc Brooks. And, you know, he wanted Doc to know that, that he had his back. And uh, for what it's worth, I mean, it, you know, the team, the team ended up doing pretty well. So, you know, you have to, you have to give them credit for that. But, um, yeah, it's just basically you see Wally come out and you just follow him, you know, and see what happens and, and, uh, and we'll, we'll go from there. I believe that has over a couple million views on, on YouTube, that, that ejection there. Now, I do want to go back to something I mentioned before about it being on Comcast and then mm-hmm. them pulling the show and fans being left not – 
being able to know what the ending was. Now, you and I have had some conversations uh, privately off camera and had some emails back, and you have an interesting theory on why you believe that Comcast pulled the show that I that I find to be a great story. Why do you believe that Comcast pulled um, Playing for Peanuts off the air? Um, well, I, I know exactly what happened because I pulled it. Um, so, so what happened was the show finished up and we had, we had high hopes that ESPN or another major network would take it. Nobody did. Um, there's a guy at, at Comcast Chicago named Greg, Greg Bowman, and he found out about the show and he was just like, this is, this is great. I want to run this. And I said, that's, that's awesome. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to run in Chicago, but you know, can we get it on nationally? And he worked out kind of like a, a patchwork distribution through all the Comcast network, sports net uh, networks um, throughout the country. I think it was like nine or eight or something like that. And it was going to be in New York. It was going to be in San Francisco, whatever. And and we coordinated the whole thing so that it was going to air the same day in every market. And it's not easy to do because Comcast, each network is kind of like independent. You know, they have their own teams and everything. So it's not like ESPN where they pop in a show and everybody in the country is watching the same thing. So, um, so Greg was fantastic. He worked it all out. And, um, the, the show in New York was airing on Sportsnet New York, which was a Comcast owned network. And that's also owned by the Mets. And, um, as part of the arrangement, I wanted the Mets to show some commercials for, for the show during, you know, because Wally played for the Mets and, um, the Mets and SNY just kind of dragged their feet. I guess it was about five or six weeks into the 10 episode series. I mean, you would know better than I would. I don't remember at this point, but um, let's say five weeks in um, the Mets ran a, um, they ran an episode during a Mets rain delay, I think. And then, you know, I, I brought the issue up again the next week. I said, I need some commercials because you guys had great ratings for this. The fans want to see this. Just run a couple of show, uh, you know, commercials. They refused. So I told them, I said, look, if you're not going to, if the Mets are not going to support this at all, we're going to pull it. The reason the Mets didn't want to support it was because Wally was not yet in their organization and they viewed him as a threat to Jerry Manuel because fans to this day want Wally to manage the Mets. Um, but back then it was, it was really heated. Um, turns out they hired him. They hired him as a minor league manager, I think the next year. But SMY did not want to promote Wally, yet they were running the show. So, you know, I, I tried to put pressure on them, and, and when push came to shove, they were not going to do it. So I told them, I said, look, we got to pull the show. I mean, if, if we're not going to be able to put enough pressure on the Mets to actually promote this show that has one of their former players that their fans want to see, and it's not, you know, the show doesn't make the case that Wally should be a manager of the Mets. It makes the case that Wally's a good manager, but um, that's how it happened. And, it, you know, it... it it stinks because, you know, a lot of fans like the show and, you know, even out of the New York market, like yourself, like, and, and I wanted the show to, um, you know, really kind of show people what it's like to be a minor league player. It goes far beyond Wally and the Mets in my, you know, my opinion, a lot of people see like the ejection videos now and they think it's a show about Wally. Um, Wally's a huge part of the show, obviously, but it's a, it's a show about baseball. That was always the intent. I would encourage people that listen to this that have not seen the show Playing for Peanuts to purchase it on Amazon. John, is it okay to talk about it being on YouTube? Do you advise people to watch it on YouTube? Is that okay? 
you know, I, I make it available to everybody at this point. I'm not, I want, um, you know, I want people to see it, you know, that's, that's really the goal at this point. I mean, we didn't, uh, we didn't make any money on it. Um, you know, so at this point, if the story gets out there and, you know, kids see it, you know, and understand, you know, what it takes to be a major league or, or minor league baseball player, I think it's a positive. So find and search Playing for Peanuts on YouTube because we do have a lot of kids in the area, especially with the shortened draft now, that might go that independent baseball route. And it is a TV show about independent baseball. So I strongly suggest everybody that listens to this, if you haven't already, to uh, watch it again. It's called Playing for Peanuts. Now, John, Wally definitely... has the resume to be a manager in the big leagues. Why do you think he hasn't gotten his shot outside of Arizona? Well, I think the game has changed. Um, I think while he, he, he's managed in the minor leagues for, I was in the Mets system for five years. You know, that was during the Sandy Alderson time. He, he got all the way up to AAA. So he's been, you know, using and working with sabermetrics and, and advanced analytics for years. Um, he believes in it, but he also believes in his gut instinct. And I don't think major league teams want to invest in somebody who believes so strongly in their experience and their eyes. Um, I'm confident that if he took over a major league team at this point, he'd win. You know, he, he, he could turn a team into a winner, whether that means like Buck Showalter, where they make the playoffs and they're a much better organization or winning a championship, I don't know. Um, but he, I mean, he, he wins everywhere he goes. I think he won this past year with the Long Island Ducks. They, they were in first place last I checked, and, and he had some uh, legal issues there. But um, uh, he, he wins, and, and he, he gets things done, but he's a very strong, uh, opinionated guy, and I think that's something that major league teams don't like now. So um, when the thing didn't go well in Arizona, it was a different different time but he could have ended up like a Bruce Bochy where he won so much in 2004 5 and 6 that he could hang around for 10 years but now he's got to break in and get past a lot of baggage and um, I don't think teams want to deal with that yeah, I, I agree with you. He has won everywhere he's ever coached at the minor league level, at the independent level. I believe he's even won overseas in some of maybe even the Mexican league, I believe I saw. I think he was even managing Wild Thing Rick Vaughn in the California Penal League and won that league as well. Now, you are right. He is very opinionated and he believes in, in what he believes. And I think a lot of times you see GMs that have their agenda. And many times you see the GMs, it's it's their call. They're making the calls from from their luxury suite. And it's not the manager making the, um, the call from the dugout. Now, I do want to go back to the league for a little bit. What was life like for you and the players in the league and, and while you were on the road? You can really tell episode one that there was a lot of buzz around the league stadiums were packed people were going to the ballpark to enjoy baseball and then in the later episodes you notice that they're playing for 25 to 100 people and they did have a lot of talent in that league so what was life like for you and the players in the league and and while you guys were on the road I think it was easier for the crew and and myself Um, we were in a hotel even when we were in Albany, um, 
and when the team was at home in Albany, Georgia, they were in former military barracks, which I mean, we cover that one, excuse me, in one of the early episodes. And yeah, they weren't, it wasn't a great living situation. It wasn't terrible, you know, and most of these guys were young kids and, uh, they didn't mind it, but, um, it, it was sparse. It wasn't, wasn't the greatest. Um, Albany was a nice city. Um, you know, but, um, the league didn't have a lot of money to put players up in, in a great, you know, living situation. Um, as far as on the road and stuff like that, I mean, we were basically, you know, traveling by car, uh, and we were doing it in a much easier fashion than, than the team. They were in a bus. The buses broke down a lot. Um, there were times where they had to go from South Carolina through the city they had to play in the next day back to Albany because they the league hadn't gotten them rooms, so they slept in their housing down in South Georgia, and they came back up through to, to play in Macon. I mean, just things like that made it so much more hard, so much more difficult for them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think most of the guys would look back on it and probably say, you know, it was a, it was a really fun experience, but it's tough. You know, it, it's a tough grind. They weren't making a lot of money. The living conditions weren't great. You know, the, the food that they were getting, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the clubhouse, it wasn't very glamorous. And we tried to keep, or I tried to keep my crew, you know, paid and happy, and they were happy to be there. But, you know, it was a professional situation. Um, so they were in, in a better situation than the players. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because a lot of these, you know, a lot of affiliated minor leaguers go through the same stuff, and it's not it's not fair to them. And, um most of them aren't going to make it. So, you know, it's uh, it's not like everyone's going to turn out like Alex Rodriguez. There, there's a lot of guys that that's that's it for them. Some guys play a year or even a month of independent ball, and they're done. So, John, you mean to tell me that you and your crew, when you stayed in the hotels, it wasn't one hotel room for seven guys, huh? <laughs> yeah, two, two to a room, and uh, we were in like, I think we were in like the sleep-in, the La Quinta Inn. They were, you know... Solid chains, but not great. But, um, yeah, the, the team was usually in a hotel like that on the road, but um, they, uh, they their home living conditions were, were, were a little bit rougher. Um, they actually, the, the housing they were in in Albany, Georgia, was housing that they were, they were in the same military barracks that the um, Hurricane Katrina victims were in. So it was, it was that level of like, you know, Hey, your city just got decimated here, stay in these old deserted barracks. And now you've got, you know, baseball players living there. And, and these are kids that, uh, you know, are away from home. You know, they're younger, uh, you know, they're all sleeping with uh, roaches and, and mattresses on the floor and stuff like that. So, you know, but they, they didn't complain. I mean, they complained when we asked them like, how is your living condition? But you never heard about it otherwise, you know, and they, they were, they were tough guys and, and they, uh, And I had wondered when I watched the show, because there's one trip where they drive, I believe, four hours, pass through the city they're supposed to play in the next day, and drive another four hours home to sleep for a couple hours, and then to drive back another four hours the next day to play there. And I was wondering if it was a way to save money, or if hotels in the area had gotten the word out that this league is not paying their bills, so don't take any teams from from this league because I believe there was one manager of a hotel that said he was owed I believe it was nineteen thousand dollars and and they weren't paying their bills now you did not have any players from that show make it to the big leagues 
Um, they did. Some guys did get quite a few guys did get picked up for affiliated ball, and you had some former major leaguers like Curtis Goodwin and uh, who was the guy from the White Sox, Mike. Mike Caruso. Mike Caruso, who uh, I believe was runner up for Rookie of the Year for the White Sox, but no players from the show made it to the bigs or back to the bigs with those guys that were trying to make a comeback. What players? did you think had the best chance to make it to the big leagues while you were filming the show? That's a good question. Probably Jerome Gamble and Dumas Garcia, two pitchers. Um, I think six guys made it to AAA the next year. And I can't remember off the top of my head who those guys were. I know one was Chris Dinnins. Um, I'd have to go back and check my notes. But, I, I, yeah, I think six guys, five or six guys made it to AAA. Um, like you said, a bunch of guys got signed during the season, and um, nobody made it to the major leagues. But I do believe that um, a lot of the guys—it's really interesting. A lot of those guys are now coaches, um, in, in one level or another. And uh, you know, I think—I don't think Wally Backman instilled that in those guys. I think Wally found guys that he thought had a high baseball IQ and were good players, and. Um, Coincidentally, a lot of those guys were, I guess, on the path or thinking about coaching. You know, guys like Tug Gillingham, uh, he runs uh, his own travel organization. He's coached in, uh, a little bit in college, a little bit in high school. Um, so he's a coach now. Um, Jason Balcom owns his own baseball academy in Georgia. Um, Can I uh, add another yeah. tidbit about Jason Balcom? Sure. He was also the body double for Jackie Robinson in the movie 42. So it's been shared on the podcast. I often, during the Around the Horn section, ask people favorite baseball movie, and people have said 42. So when you go and watch Playing for Peanuts after listening to this, go back, Jay Shabalcom. He was the baseball body double for Jackie Robinson in the movie 42. Yeah, yeah, and he, um, I remember when that happened. I was that was really really cool, and, and Jason's a great guy. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to I'm drawing a blank on the other guys that have coached, but um, uh, Mike Crusoe, I believe, is a baseball instructor uh, down in Florida. You know, I mean, the, the the love of the game kind of permeated the, the atmosphere of the team, and um, you know, it's interesting to see that here we are, ten years, twelve years later, and a lot of these guys are still in the game, and, and none of them made it to the major leagues after this, the show, but um, they all clearly, you know, have a love for it, and they're still involved, which is uh, which is great. Interesting story. So I used to coach with a guy at Wallert Catholic High School. His name was Brett Bildstein. He went on to coach in the Chicago area. I actually lent him playing for peanuts to watch when we coach together. And he sent me a text message or a face, something on Facebook. He goes, you'll never guess who I just coached against. And it was Tug from the show. And now Brett Bildstein's an athletic director, and he actually talked to Tug about the show. And Tug just seems like a fantastic guy. Uh, he, he's one of my favorites. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, we, we've kept in touch Um you know, I, now I run a nonprofit, uh, and we we're a baseball organization, and, and we try to share the game. And we do a lot of work with his organization out in Chicago. Um, you know, and, and uh, guys like that, you know, are, they're good for the game. You know, there's just no other way to put it. You know, John, you must be uh, picking my brain here because I was going to ask you coming up here if you're still in contact with any of the players. So you and Tug are still in contact. Any of the other ones that you're still in contact with? 
Uh, well, Mike Crusoe, I'm in contact with uh, because he's my cousin. Uh, that's a that's an interesting story uh, we can get to. But um, you know, just through like social media and stuff, you know, I'll uh, time, from time to time I'll see what these guys are up to, or you know, they'll check in or whatever. But um, you know, guys like uh, Joe Hoof, Doc Brooks, you know, we're not certainly not friends, but we we stay in contact. Um, Bubber Birdsong, the first base coach. Um, you know, and, you know, every once in a while it would be like a happy birthday message or something like that. I mean, Drew Chitrone, uh, the closer for the team. So, you know, it, it's, they're all still in contact with each other. I'm in contact with, you know, Jaysha and Tug and those guys. Um, and, you know, we, uh, we keep in touch that way. It's, it's kind of, uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty far removed from each other at this point, but we all, we all know who we are and we, uh, we check in periodically and it's, uh, you know, they're a bunch of good guys. It's crazy to think that that show, I believe, just passed its 10-year anniversary. But you still occasionally will post things. And whenever you post a picture or a video, I always look at the comments and I look at the likes. And I see a lot of people that were affiliated with the show always comment about how that was one of the most memorable times, uh, memorable experiences they've ever had. I did reach out to a couple of them seeing if they'd like to be a guest, but um, I'm pretty sure the messages went straight to their spam folder and, and they haven't heard it yet. But you've released a lot of clips that did not make the 10-part documentary. What were some of your funny moments that never made the show? Wow, that's, um, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff that, that didn't make the show in its entirety, but in one way or another, I think I was able to work in a lot of it. If you notice, towards the end of the season, I think like episode eight, nine, and maybe ten, it's a lot of montages where I was able to sneak in, you know, like a quick clip of like a, you know, the, um, the, the bullpen basically lighting their chairs on fire, you know, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, the team started to do its own ground screw work. Um, there's a quick shot at one point of Wally with a leaf blower. I mean, just stuff that, like, you couldn't build an episode or a story around, but Wally Backman with a leaf blower or the team pulling their own tarp in, you know, bare feet, shorts, and a T-shirt because it was their off day. Um, those types of things. Um, there's a there's an extended thing on the DVD. It's also on YouTube where Wally decides to buy a snake as a prank um, for one of his coaches. And, you know, that whole thing, I think our, our crew uh, followed – it followed that whole episode or whatever uh, story for an entire afternoon before a game. And, you know, when the game happened, that was the least important part. The most important part was Wally bought a snake. And, uh, you know, it was stupid, but it was hilarious. And and those are the types of things where, you know, I was able to stick that onto the DVD as an extra. And, uh, and that's on YouTube now. But as far as stuff that didn't make it, I mean, we – we stuck some just about every funny thing in. There might be one other thing that I can think of off the top of my head where I've never actually seen the footage, but Jaysha and somebody else went golfing one day, and we sent the cameraman, and it's sitting it's sitting somewhere, and I, I never got around to posting it, and it was just kind of like two dudes golfing. And, I, and it was probably very similar to when um, Mike Calaccio and Chris Webb went to a local Quiznos for a meet and greet. <laughs> the kid and nobody, threw only nobody, sliders. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody knew they were there. Um, you know, this was towards the end of the season, and nobody that came in accidentally cared that they were there. So, 
you know, it was one of those things where, you know, there was no representative from the team. The team was short staff. So it was just two players sitting at a table doing nothing. But we mic'd them and just their conversation, you know, one kid came in at the end and that was cool because it was a, a kid that obviously, you know, was a fan. Um, and it was a nice little heartwarming thing. Uh, but the larger story was this league is failing. I mean, you, you send guys out for a meet and greet, you're wasting their time. You got one fan. Um, they could have just, you know, gotten a car and driven to this kid's house and, and given him like, you know, a, a baseball lesson or something, you know, but it, but they were at a public place and, and everybody's just walking by nobody cares. Um, so those are the types of things that like, you know, normally that's really mundane, but in the, in the context of the show and the humor of the show, you see that and you're just like, wow, this is, you know, this is what a, the life of a baseball player is like, I guess, you know, and it is, and it, it's, uh, one of the, the facets of their life that I wanted to show was that, you know, there's humor in everything and, and they were able to find it. But um, if you're, if you're going to play pro ball because you think it's a glamorous thing, you should think again. You're right. There was one fan that showed up and they, they really did make his day with the signed baseball and a signed team photo. And, and yeah. they, they didn't blow him off. They had a, they had a great conversation with him. You could tell that they really cared. He took the time out of the day to show up. Who were some of your favorite guys to uh, interact with? You know, I can't say that I didn't like interacting with anybody, but if I had to pick a few, you know, Obviously, Tug, Jaysha was great. Doc was great. Um, Chris Webb was fantastic. So was Mike Palaccio. I mean, you know, and, and I'm I'm kind of basing that on as a producer, you know, who was always like able to or willing to kind of change what they were doing in order to give you an interview or, you know, willing to wear a microphone. Joe Hooft wore a microphone, um, you know, and uh, even Curtis Goodwin. Curtis was a... Curtis was a character, um, you know, and he was kind of standoffish with us. But one day he decided to wear a microphone and he, I don't know if he talks to himself the entire game, you know, because he's out in the outfield, but he talked for us for seven or eight innings. I mean, just nonstop. Like the dude spoke without stopping. He was telling stories. He was trying to bring other players in. Like, he was trying to bring Jason Balcom into a conversation. Jason's not wearing a microphone. He's in left field and or right field. And, you know, Curtis is having a two-way conversation as if he's giving us content. Um, but, of course, you couldn't correct Curtis because, he, you know, that wasn't that wasn't part of the deal. Curtis is going to be Curtis, and you just have to roll with it. So, um, but, yeah, I mean, all those guys were, were just fantastic. Um, Steve Butler was, was, was a huge, you know, help as far as, you know, getting a story or understanding what was happening. Um, you know, and the coaching staff was great too. You know, they, they were just top to bottom and the staff of the team was great. You know, I, I, I don't know if I did enough in depth on that to kind of delineate between the guys that ran the league and the guys that ran the team. Now the team was run by a bunch of dudes that were really, really nice. Um, there were some issues with the league office. Uh, not everybody there, but just, you know, enough that it made it, difficult for us and it also made it difficult obviously for the players and the wallets. John, you did a great job as a director on reaching me at many levels. I know when I watch it, I had um, heartfelt 
feelings toward the players, but I also love the comedic side of it. And I also love the baseball tips and the baseball pranks that were thrown in there. I love that you mentioned Stevie Butler because I love reading the comments on YouTube videos when they get posted. And I love that video of Wally's ejection where somebody commented, he goes, where's Stevie playing? Because Wally's like, put Stevie in left and then I want you to put Stevie at second and then put Stevie at short. Why don't you move Stevie to first base? And somebody's like, so where's Stevie playing? Because Wally, in the heat of the moment, put him at about five five different spots now here's here's something that that I I really had a question about and and I didn't um tip you off to this one but um I hope you don't have a problem answering it now one of my reality tv is is a guilty pleasure of mine and I absolutely love the show bar rescue well visiting those bars talking to those owners I realize that a lot of it is scripted reality and some of the things are set up. Now, were any of your show playing for peanuts? Were any was any of that stuff set up or scripted reality or was it we're going to mic these guys and we're going to video them and they're going to have this stuff on them for 24 hours and we're going to be able to piece together a 100% legitimate honest show. The only thing we scripted didn't make the show, um, and it was intended as a promo. And that was towards the end of the season. We uh, we put a mic on Mike Colaccio, and uh, we were just like he, he played guitar, and he was Mike's a great guy. He, he's I mean he's a reliever. He, he's a little eccentric. Um, we wanted to just have him playing guitar in the middle of Albany, Georgia, and just as a promo, like just like this dude, this random you know dude in the middle of like. The downtown, there's like two downtowns in Albany. One is really run down and kind of deserted, and that's where I wanted to put him, just playing guitar. At the moment, I don't remember exactly why, but I was just like, we'll use this as a promo. You know, it had nothing to do with the story. And so he did it, and uh, I don't I don't think I used that even in a montage. And I don't know if I ever even released it. Um, that was the only thing. I mean, when the, when the show started, I had a meeting with a um, pretty prominent reality show um, lawyer and and it was through a connection that i had you know he was going to get us um this is before we focused on espn it was um we were going to get on like you know mtv or something like that he had connections with all the major networks um his idea was from the get-go we were going to have a bonfire we were going to call strippers and we were going to get these guys in trouble with the girlfriend episode one right there and I was just like, yeah, um, no, that, that's not how we're doing this. I'm sorry. You know, and he's like, if you do it that way, you're going to have a really controversial show and that'll be great. I said, listen, I don't, I don't want to go down that road because these are guys that, you know, they've got families, they've got careers. They won't all want to get signed. And if somebody is, is kind of put up into doing something that's stupid and it's on camera, um, they're never going to get signed or, you, you know, unless they're, unless they're great, they're, they're not going to even have a shot. Um, so I said no to that. And that's why early in the season, we basically ran out of money because we were just basically following these guys. We had no backing, we had no studio. Um, and, and my guys, my crew was, they were all working on a deferred basis. So they weren't even getting paid. I was just making sure they had a uh, you know, place to sleep and food. Um, so, so yeah, that was the decision. It was made early on. Once you know, and I was pitching it as a reality show. Once that happened, we were kind of like just 
we were just out there, just floating, floating at sea, hoping there was a story. And luckily there was, but there was, no, there was nothing staged. Um, you know, you have to imagine that at some point players like Curtis Goodwin, for example, like I just mentioned, wearing a microphone, they're going to change what they're saying, you know, to be more whatever, funny or maybe guarded. Um, but as far as situations, scenarios, anything like that, nothing was scripted. It was just basically like, hey, let's, um, you know, who are we going to mic today for today's game? We always mic Wally, but we, we always tried to mic another player. And, uh, you know, we would try to talk to guys like, like Butler or Tug, find out, you know, what are you guys doing? You know, before the game, after the game, is anybody, you know, doing anything interesting? Like, does the team have you going to a meet and greet? And we would try to plan around that. But, um, yeah, it, it was uh, – it was, I mean, I think the show was a lot better because we didn't try to stage it. And, and in the in the interim, since then, you know, I I regret having tried to pitch it as a reality show. You know, I was uh, I was going for more of a documentary feel um, by calling it a reality show. I think a lot of people have thought that it was, you know, portions of it were scripted. Um, certainly, people on YouTube think that the Wally ejections are scripted. Not not a, not a lot of people, but you get like that ten or fifteen percent that's not familiar with his background, um, and those those people, you know, I see that every once in a while, and I'm like, man, you you guys have no idea, you know, and and the uh, the big uh, their big argument is this guy's wearing a microphone, it must be scripted. It's like yeah, he's wearing a microphone. We've got you know forty five hours of stuff with him wearing a microphone, and and um, you know, but but the, this is Wally, and you know, if you look online, you can find other ejections of Wally. I mean, that that was that was Wally. You know, he did the exact same thing, whether there was a camera on him or not, you know. Um, so, but no, no, nothing was scripted. And I'm, I'm glad it was. I'm glad you didn't take that MTV pitch route because I can tell you that I probably would have checked out right away yeah. if, if that shenanigans was going on. Now, oh, last, yeah, now, last question before we get to the around the horn section, if I can keep you for that. But sure. the league ended up folding. Why do you think they folded, and what do you think the league could have done prior to the season, during the season, and after the season to be successful and keep the league going? I think they ran out of money. I mean, I mean, I know they ran out of money, but I think the only thing they could have done, you know, there are things they could have done at the margins. Maybe um, they, they had a team in Bradenton, um, but they pulled the plug on not the team, but they pulled the plug on playing in Bradenton early because they couldn't get, I believe it was a license to do fireworks or sell liquor. Um, so maybe they should have not had a team in Bradenton or they should have ironed that out. Um, but they ran out of money when they were telling everybody all along they had enough money to run the league for three to five years. So the, the, the entire premise of the league was, hey, we know year one's going to be tough, but we're here for the long haul. We are in cities that have, you know, especially Albany, Georgia, they were in cities that had had professional baseball dangled about or had been there and had left. And they, they knew that the people, the fans there were going to be hesitant to support a team. So they kept telling people, you know, we're here for the long haul. We're going to lose money early on. That's fine. Um, but then mid season, it was clear they were out of money. I mean, they weren't promoting anything. Um, we had a, uh, we had a sunflower seed company that was like, Hey, would, would you put, you know, product placement if we send some sunflower seeds? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll throw, we'll throw it out there to the players. And if they're using it, they're using it. And if not, you know, that's, that's fine. I mean, they weren't paying us anything. Um, 
So we, we, um, we scheduled delivery of it. And next thing you know, Wally comes out and he goes, did you, were you telling me about that sunflower seed company? I said, yeah. He goes, they're selling it in the stand. They were basically taking shipments that were intended for, for the crew, taking the product and selling it. And we were just, you know, going to, you know, give it to the players and say, Hey, if you want to use it, you know, these guys, you know, they might sponsor the show. Um, but then they, they ended up selling the stuff. So it was obvious mid season that the league was in financial trouble. They weren't able to promote. Um, there was no merchandise to sell because they couldn't afford to buy it. Um, and there had been early in the season and, um, and then pretty soon, like, I, you know, whenever Wally got ejected, they were just all over me, like, hey, let's get this on ESPN, you know? And I said, well, how is that even going to help the league if Wally, a five-second clip of Wally throwing bats is on ESPN? You're not going to sell tickets um, because it's covered in all the papers down here. So the local market already knows what's going on, you know, and why would I give that away when, you know, we're still trying to build this as a series for next season and beyond? Um, so why would you give that away? Because they had a financial interest in the show succeeding just as much as I did. Um, but it was obvious that they were kind of trying to chase anything. They were desperate for anything. And, you know, they fired Wally, they rehired Wally. They were trying to make this into like this big soap opera. And at the end of the day, they were just out of money and they were scrambling and struggling. And, um, by the end of the season, everybody knew it was done, but they didn't pull the plug until it was the next February. Because when, um, I don't know if you remember the New York uh, State Governor Elliot Spitzer got busted with a call girl, and uh, the South Coast League was still officially telling everybody they were back. And as soon as that happened, they announced Elliot Spitzer night at it was Macon, Macon, Georgia, um, and that was like their last big thing. And that was, I think, early two thousand seven. The league folded within a month. I mean, they they never they were never going to have a team. Um, there were. As recently as four or five years ago, there was um, there was a report in I think it was Aiken, South Carolina, that uh, the stadium, like the clubhouse, was still locked up. And they were still telling people that they, you know, they still owed money. Um, there were belongings still there. I mean, it was it was an ugly situation. Like you mentioned earlier, hotels weren't paid, players weren't paid, players never got their rings. I mean, it was just it, it was an uncomfortable thing to see as it was happening. But then the way it went down. Nobody was in those cities, none of the players, certainly I wasn't down there when it all went down and, and everything got canceled. But, you know, you got to feel for those fans that were promised all year, hey, we're here for a long time, and now they're not. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. I believe I saw that the league retracted two teams and made it a four-team league in going on. And then I think I read that article that you shared, but there were people that weren't paid. There were um, a lot of people that invested time and money and they just kind of washed their hands of the whole thing and, and never connected anybody. I'd again, would like to thank John Fitzgerald for joining me, director of the Emerald Diamond and director of my favorite baseball TV show of all time, playing for peanuts. Please check it out on YouTube and tune in for the Around the Horn segment. Hey, is this heaven? No. It's the Around the Horn section of the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Five random questions that the guests were not prepped for. John Fitzgerald, director of Playing for Peanuts, 
please watch it on YouTube. You will be blown away. If you've already seen it, watch it again. You will be blown away again. Also director of the Emerald Diamond. We tweak things a little bit for John. So John, what I am going to do is I am going to name players from the show. And I want you to randomly throw out your first thought that comes to mind. Are you on board for the Around the Horn section? Sure. All right. First player I'm going to throw out, Curtis Baby Baby Goodwin. He's a wild card. Um, you know, he had played... He had played Major League Baseball. He was on the Orioles the night Cal Ripken broke the consecutive game streak. And most of my contact with him until, I don't know, maybe the first three weeks of the season was him trying to pitch me on buying his footage from him. Uh, he, he told me he had footage of Cal Ripken breaking the consecutive game streak. I didn't know at the time, but apparently Curtis took it upon himself to bring a camera onto the field and get his own footage because he knew there would be value in it. Um, so yeah, that was bizarre, but, um, you know, nice guy, fast. He was old too. He was like 35 years old and he was one of the fastest guys on the team. So, um, good ball player and, uh, you know, made it to the show. So my friend and I, Cole Bogey of the ultimate sports weekend, him and I would play kickball with our students. And before we would catch a pop fly, when we were watching this show, we would say, baby, baby, because that's what Curtis would always say, uh, either before he would steal a base or before he would catch a ball. Next one, Phil Plantier. Oh, Phil. Um, (laughs) I had no contact with Phil except for the one interview um, that we did after the second Wally ejection. And um, I work in healthcare. I do a lot of interviews with doctors. Doctors, you know, I guess if you're, if you're a surgeon and, and you're elbow deep in somebody and you're saving their life, you have every right to have a big ego. Phil's got the biggest ego of anybody I've ever spoken to in my life. And, and he uh, just, I mean, you can see how he comes off in the interview, you know, and I don't want to badmouth the guy, you know, but, um, it's all there on the, on the interview. Interesting thing. He did play for the Oakland A's and the San Diego Padres, and I loved his batting stance. I actually enjoyed yeah. his time in Oakland. But then when I watched playing for Peanuts, I just was not a fan of him. I, I love how he talks about how you have to react to adversity, and that's how the game goes. And then you you pin the clip of him getting ejected and, and following around that old umpire like a lunatic. Um, interesting tidbit about Phil Plantier is I recently, as of last year, saw his son play for the Madison Mallards in the North Woods League, and he is a top prospect. Jamie nice. Jamie Tool. Uh, yeah, you know I, I don't know. He, he was he was the guy that pulled the trigger on letting us come down and film. You know, so without him, there's no show. Um, and I think the things he was saying early on were, were good. I mean, he, he had the vision for the league and he wanted to be there for five years. And, and um, you know, I think whatever happened behind the scenes with the money that, that made it so that they were not on solid ground, it really started to come out during the season. You know, he, he was saying things that were backed up by facts and, and it, um, started to get ugly and, and I think he tried to use Wally, uh, you know, by 
like firing him and rehiring him. But one thing that sticks out is uh, at the Wally uh, getting rehired press conference, he says, um, I think he starts off the press conference. It's, it's in the show. He says, uh, he says, uh, there's a, there's a quote that, um, you know, I really love. And, and, and he, he just sits there and he's, he looks all, away and he, he calls to one of his guys. He goes, what was that quote? And he goes, uh, to, to err is human and to forgive is divine. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. To err is human and to forgive is divine. And really, that's our whole deal. <laughs> but like, it was such an important quote to him that he couldn't even remember it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that was really when people were like, wait a second. The things that we're hearing in the press, you know, at fans, you know, like they were, there was just a huge disconnect. It was like, why did you fire him in the first place? And then why would you rehire him? And what is happening with the rest of this league that we need to know about? And slowly things started to come out around that time. Yeah, they say that money is truly the root of all evil. And you could almost tell when the executives knew that they weren't going to continue. And, and you, they just seemed deflated. And they also seemed like they were going to do whatever they could to get theirs. And everybody else that wasn't in that small, tight-knit group was, was going to get um, get played for a fool there. Interesting fact about Jamie Toole is he was the general manager for an independent league team. I believe they were called the Bluefish. And he is the current GM of the Jupiter Hammerheads, the Class A affiliate of the Miami Marlins. Tug yes. Gillingham. Tug's a good guy. He's down to earth, knows a ton about catching. Um, and, uh, you know, one of those guys that was just so dependable if you needed a quote or if you needed uh, to understand, you know, like I said, I played a little bit of baseball, but like, you know, being around pro players, you need to ask every once in a while, like, what is, you know, what's the big deal about a player's manager? What's the big deal about that? Tug, you know, sit down and explain it to you and just make sure you understood it. Um, he's, a, he's a teacher now. Uh, and you could see that back then. He, he wanted to make sure that things were being communicated and that you have what you needed to, to get what you needed to get done. I had shared that Brett Bildstein story earlier, how he had coached against him. I believe he uh, took over his dad's program, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, Mike Janella. Mike Janella. I didn't have too much to do with Mike. Um, he, what was he? he was an announcer for the Anderson Joes, and, and Wally, uh, Wally was ejected and took exception to how it was described. I don't remember exactly what Mike said, but... Uh, one of the coaches, uh, Buddy York, was sick, and so he was in his car listening to the game, and he told Wally what, what had been said. Wally went up there and, and uh, uh, cursed him out after the game. And We interviewed Mike after that, and uh, he was cool. I mean, he, he told us exactly what went down and, and his point of view. And, you know, and that's one of those things where people think it's like a very pro-Wally show. And Wally should not have gone up there, but he did. But I think it was blown out of proportion. Um, but Mike was just doing his job, and, and that's the type of thing where if you're going to respect the game and you're going to respect how things are, you know, falling apart, but, you know, people are trying to do their best, Mike was just, he was simply doing his job. And I think Wally, you know, that was one of the times where Wally should have, uh, you know, all he did was tell him, you know, don't say those things about me. And he used some very colorful words. He didn't approach him or anything, but it was reported like Wally did. And that's the that's you know the disconnect where the guy's doing his job, he's broadcaster. Wally goes up to, to say a few words, and then next thing you know, um, I think that's that might be what led to Wally. He was suspended, I think, for that. 
he wasn't suspended for the ejection. He was suspended for that. But anyway, yeah, Mike's a good guy. He, uh, he was very uh, helpful in, in terms of getting that story, you know, covered. Yeah, I know he was the radio announcer for the Anderson Joes out of South right. Carolina. And he, he, the quote was that Wally was an embarrassment to professional baseball. And right, he, had, he had backed up his argument. Well, with Wally, you throw you threw 22 bats out on the field. You never see that. But interesting tidbit about Mike Janela is he has recently won $150,000 on the game show, the one thousand, I'm sorry, the one hundred thousand dollar pyramid game huh. on ABC. Well, there you go. I didn't and know that. <laughs> two more to go here, John. What about Jaysha Belcom? Jaysha's a great, great guy. Um, you know, he had he had been through some stuff. He had been a prospect with the Cubs, and I think uh, his dad had gotten sick, and, and he gave up the game for a few years. So the peanuts were his re-entry into pro ball and uh you know it didn't work out for him long term but he was a he was a solid ball player and a really really good guy I believe he was a second round pick if I can remember yeah. correctly and we shared this story earlier but he was actually Jackie Robinson's body double in the movie 42 for the baseball scenes and last but not least we cannot talk about playing for peanuts without mentioning Wally Backman Wally, uh, you know, he's a, he's a really, he's a nice guy. He's a great coach. Um, he's a leader. And I think, uh, we on the crew, especially me, learned a lot about leadership, um, from Wally. And, and, uh, you know, Wally's got his, uh, he's got his baggage there, you know, he sometimes needs to just not talk about something and he will. Um, but as far as, you know, like I said earlier, you know, having a plan, sticking to the plan, and his, his big thing was communication. And he told us that early. He said what set him apart from other managers was that he wanted everyone to know where they stood in terms of, you know, the pecking order, whether you're talking about a bullpen or your infield or your outfield or your pitching staff. And he wanted them to know how they needed to perform to stay in that role and how they needed to perform to get better. And he was constantly telling people, you know, great job or, Hey, you got to work on this or whatever. And, and it was a motivating thing, but it was also, you know, guy out in the bullpen in the middle of South Georgia, you know, baking in the heat wants to know, am I coming in in the sixth inning if there's trouble or are you going to another guy? And if so, why? Because you lose motivation if you don't understand where you sit and you know what the manager thinks of you. And, um, you know, he had times where he traded people and told them, look, I'm trading you because I need to get this other guy in here. And I, I had an offer from another team, but I gave you to a third team because you're going to play there. Um, I think it was Travis Hundley early on. He, he dealt him. I can't remember who he traded him for, but he, he told him, he said, you're, I'm trading you to the Anderson Joes so you can play more. Um, he wanted all those guys to get signed. Uh, and um, he, uh, you know, he was able to accomplish that for a lot of guys. But he really he had the player's best interest at heart. So, you know, it was, it was interesting to see that, but that is leadership to me. And, and that, um, I think those guys followed him because they understood what he was trying to do for them. 
I would like to thank John Fitzgerald for joining us here. But, John, I'd like to thank you for making an outstanding show about baseball called Playing for Peanuts. You can buy it on Amazon by searching Playing for Peanuts. They have one that you can watch with the kids and one that you cannot watch with the kids, a censored and an uncensored version. And also you can stream it on YouTube by simply... Searching, playing for peanuts. We know when we hear Mariano Rivera's music in the background, the podcast is coming to an end, just like the game did when he entered. Stick around for closing time. It's tradition here at the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast to let our guest participate in the closing time segment where John J. Fitzgerald, the director of Playing for Peanuts, will talk uninterrupted about anything involving life and baseball. John, it's a tradition here that I'm going to give you a cheesy nickname related to baseball, and then I'll turn it over to you. So we're going to have a free pass with Fitzgerald. All right. Thanks, Coach. Um, yeah, so, you know, my background as a filmmaker you know, and a baseball player um, kind of led me to start a nonprofit. And we uh, did a lot of work teaching the game of baseball to kids out in Ireland, and you know, my time with, with the peanuts uh, taught me that, you know, baseball is something that a lot of people take for granted over here. And, um, you know, we've, we've tried to refocus our efforts in the U.S. And, and one of the things we're doing now that uh, means a lot to me is um, trying to help parents of four, five and six year old boys and girls to teach the game to their kids. Because we've seen, you know, working overseas that, you know, kids 12, 14, 16 years old, they don't see baseball, so they don't know anything about it. But if you have a four or five year old, you know, in America, they put a glove on their hand and they stand them out there and they expect them to have fun. Baseball's not like that. Um, you know, so we've tried to rededicate how we teach the game to make it focused around base running and gameplay to teach the kids where to run, why to run, um, and, and teach those skills of hitting, throwing, and fielding at the same time because you need to have the skill, but you also need to know what's happening. If you don't do that, You've got 15 kids just standing around, and that's when people start to think baseball is boring. And you compare that to soccer. Soccer, you have a big, giant ball, and the kids just run and chase it. That's the rule. That's what you do. That's on day one. That's why kids are having fun playing soccer. We see T-ball. You've got seven kids in the field, and they don't know what happens when a kid hits the ball. The kid who hits the ball doesn't know where to run. Um, There's just mass confusion, and it kind of just culminates in people just kind of doing it again next week. And um, so if any, you know, if there's any parent out there that uh, is interested in how we try to teach the game, it's, it's something we do for free online. We provide online instruction and tips um, based around that idea that base running is what can kind of make baseball more fun for a five-year-old kid. Um, it, they can go to playsmallball.org and, and just learn more about how we kind of try to, we're not dumbing it down for the kids. We're teaching them how to hit thrown balls. We're teaching them how to do all this stuff, how to use a glove but we're doing it with base running as the center because you can always let a kid run around the bases and they love it. Um, And I think we've gotten away from that as a game and and we need to kind of understand it. We don't want to, we need to change the game. We just need to kind of change how we're introducing kids to the game or else we're going to lose them. 
thank you to John Fitzgerald, director of Playing for Peanuts, for sitting down with me for an hour to interview him on my all-time favorite baseball show of all time, Playing for Peanuts. Find it on YouTube. Buy it on Amazon. Now, for my minute with Manaman today, I'm going to connect it a little bit to minor league baseball, and I'm going to start off with a quote from the movie Moneyball. We're all told at some point in time that we can no longer play the children's game. We just don't. We don't know when that's going to be. Some of us are told it at the age of 18. Some of us were told at the age of 40. But we're all told. When you watch Playing for Peanuts, you realize that these are guys playing baseball for 100% the love of the game. They know they have a very slim chance of making it into affiliated ball and onto the big leagues. For you seniors out there, take that quote into mind. This senior year might be your last year playing baseball, ever. For younger guys out there, freshmen, sophomores, take that quote into mind. This might be your last time ever playing baseball. Maybe you decide to hang it up yourself. Maybe you have a coach express his feelings that he does not think you are good enough to no longer play baseball. If you don't want to hear that, work hard. If you don't want to hear that, hit the gym. If you don't want to hear that, hit the batting cages. But at some point, we are all told that we can no longer play the game. And for you seniors out there and for you younger guys, I hope you hear that a lot later than sooner. And just like that, 6-4-3, we're out of here. Post-game show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. Thank you for listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. You can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram by searching Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Coach Manaman. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, find us on Spotify, and subscribe.